American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. The question that came up in the conversation, among many great questions, about the document, the, the artifact, as opposed to the digital version is an extremely important one that I think particularly affects the uh, pictorial press, the engravings of pictorial press. We do have, thanks to uh, Rich West, who will be talking about cartooning next week, three examples, which I, uh, of the one example each of the three New York, and they were only published in New York basically, we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, pictorial papers uh, in the order of their appearance, uh, Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper, Harper's Weekly, and the New York Illustrated News. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, go up and certainly look at them. I, uh, one of the reasons for that is, as we'll see here, the one thing about the digital process and, and of course, the pixelization, just like the halftone, which, of course, has been used up to now uh, in the reproduction, particularly the inexpensive reproduction of photography, is the incapacity to really capture line work really well. And, uh, and particularly this, the greater subtlety that I think we are used to in terms of wood engraving, um, you know, which we'll, we'll talk a bit about, I, I must say, as a non-art historian, not in aesthetic terms, but in terms of information. And, um, and unfortunately, I do, and this is a good example uh, of where seeing the, um, the document, so to speak, in the flesh, makes a distinct difference. Not to mention, of course, as you know, we've been discussing, probably ad nauseum, we'll discuss more, the, the context, original context of viewing, which uh, one of the problems of the internet, and particularly Google search, has blown away almost entirely, and of course we've, we've already discussed this in terms of photography, the original context within, within which uh, people in the past saw and experienced, you know, these images. So um, I, I, you know, I, I urge you to, to at least take a, you know, to take a look. Um, and to, you know, to also to, to consider, um, as I hope will, will become clear here, that um, part of, you know, my own fascination, I must say, about the pictorial press uh, is that as, as much as it was part of this massive traffic of images that by the 1850s is certainly particularly true of northern, northern political, um, political culture, but for that matter, sort of a northern culture in general in a popular sense, with an explosion of inexpensive publications, uh, not simply uh, the, news, the news publications a little more expensive, uh, but certainly many, many humor publications, which I think we'll really have to get to at some point. Um, and, of course, inexpensive prints and, and, you know, and so on. But what makes, I think, particularly uh, the, the area of, uh, of, this, of this visual news reportage, which is, of course, new to the United States, it really does not come permanently um, there until uh, 1855, um, is that it's explicitly an informational form. I mean, now we'll certainly get into well, what is, how is that conveying information? But that's something that um, is inarguable. It's there, and it's claim. It's certainly making claims that this is the news. They're reporting the news, however we may then conceive what news is. So, uh, could uh, somebody just turn on the lights? A bit? So, 
the rapid secession of southern states following Abraham Lincoln's victory in November 1860 threw the nation, the nation's weekly illustrated newspapers into a panic. And as I mentioned earlier, they were only a few years old. Uh, Leslie's was started in 1855, Harper's Weekly in 1857, and the New York Illustrated News in 1859. And although the papers were um, modeled on the much older and established Illustrated London News, which was started in 1842, so there's a real big gap between sort of the established, uh, the established pictorial paper, which, by the way, Frank Leslie, whose real name was Henry Carter, had worked for before he came to uh, the United States to start to start his own, they were all on very shaky financial footing. The pictorial weeklies had made inroads into the southern market, and this is critical. This is going to affect them tremendously in the beginning. The, the southern market was extremely unhappy about this because below the Mason-Dixon line, this was viewed as yet another example of northern publications smothering a regional literature and art. But now that war threatened to sever a significant readership on whose patronage the papers had come to rely. So to, to, to appease those readers, in the years leading up to secession, the, the New York-based uh, illustrated press, and they were all in New York, and they were all basically cheek to, cheek to, cheek to jowl to one another, they had decided and had done their best to ignore slavery, preferring to focus on travelers' accounts and scenic views of the South. So even so... By just covering the looming crisis, the pictorial papers made Southern enemies. So, for example, Leslie's editorials opposed abolition and denounced John Brown as a maniac, as they termed him, but its coverage of Harper's Ferry Raid and Brown's ensuing trial and execution fanned Southern ire anyhow, just the very fact that they were reporting on it, which was jokingly depicted, it's hard to see, in this three-panel you know, three uh, cartoon, uh, this was in Frank Leslie in November 1859. It was chronicling the flight of its own artist, William Jewett, from Virginia after locals learned that he had previously, previously sold the drawing to the notoriously anti-slavery New York Tribune. So one of the comments, for example, coming from the Savannah News just in January 1861 was, these northern illustrated papers are all unworthy of respect. Frank Leslie's paper is as bad as the one before us, and Harper's Weekly is not one whit better. Their sale of the South should be interdicted. They are incendiary and pernicious to say nothing of their demoralizing effect. Now, remember, they weren't criticizing slavery at the time, but even the very fact that they were reporting on the on the sectional crisis was, was enough to say, to, to affect that. By simply conveying the, the news of growing sectional conflict, therefore, they, they became a catalyst uh, in the deteriorating process leading to war. And no matter how hard they tried to balance coverage, the publication of those pictures just under, helped undermine uh, this notion of compromise. They were irre irrevocably depicting a nation breaking in two. Now, so in the, the first few months of 1861, as one southern state after another seceded from the Union, Frank Leslie's tried to maintain its southern readers. So editorials criticized Lincoln's new administration, which were in perfect harmony with the pro-southern Democratic press in the North. So as one example, using racist terminology, all too common, of course, in the North and South, Le South Leslie's concluded in February 1861, and I quote, uh, the destruction of our union merely to rescue a runaway nigger would be as absurd as the, a Chinaman who set fire to his house merely to roast a little pig, casting aspersions to as, as many racial groups as possible. 
Later that month, Leslie's accepted the establishment of the Confederacy and called for compromise with the new Southern nation, a position mirrored, by the way, by the Republican Harper's Weekly. So meanwhile, anticipating the worst, the papers endeavored to position themselves as nonpartisan chroniclers of events. So as Fort Sumter uh, in Charleston Harbor lay under siege, Leslie's published a call for artists from, and, and some of this is some of the quote you see here, they, they, uh, they posted uh, a call for artists from among officers and others attached to the armies of the federal and the Confederate states to submit sketches of important events and striking incidents which, they, which may occur during the impending struggle which seems to threaten the country, obviously thinking this is not going to last too long, as, as Alice raised um, two days ago. But of course, once Fort Sumter was bombarded, the papers became vigorous supporters of the Union. Forsaking their southern readers, they found a new, broader audience for their coverage in a north mobilized by war. Embracing partisanship, it turned out, was, uh, was actually profitable. The loss of Southern subscribers would lead to the demise of a lot of Northern publications and magazines during the war that had managed to withstand the 1850s Depression. But the three pictorial papers, in concert, by the way, with the nation's, the North's daily press, discovered that the Civil War raised their stature and their importance for, uh, certainly for broad Northern audiences. Northerners were desperate for, latest, for the latest news about the conflict, and as purveyors of information, the press in general became indispensable part of citizens' everyday life. Uh, that's daily newspaper circulation soared, uh, as reporters, of course, aided by the telegraph, presented news within a day of its occurrence. As for the pictorial press, in the years leading up to the war, the reading public had grown used to seeing pictures of news events. While daily newspapers could only provide maps and occasional portraits at this time, the illustrated weeklies offered pictures in the form of wood engravings, and we'll talk a bit about the engravings in a few minutes, that conveyed stories and evidence about the progress and lack of progress of the war. So five months after the attack on Fort Sumter, the circulation of the three pictorial papers hovered and sometimes were way above a, a, an exceedingly profitable 100,000. Now, uh, this is my, my chance to, uh, to attack photography. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm attacking particularly from an historian's point of view and criticizing historians, I should say. So, uh, of course, historians have long recognized uh, its visualization as a unique part of the conflict. Occurring in tandem with technological innovations in, in pictorial reporting and recording and reproduction, the war was perceived through and has left an extraordinary rich pictorial record composed of photographs, engravings, and a myriad of publications and individually published lithographic prints to name but three. And we'll be, you'll be seeing a lot of those prints uh, next week. Um, Yet, to a great extent, historical scholarship and popular documentaries, especially since, and I guess I'm constantly raising Ken Burns' 1990 Civil War, have and continue to emphasize the photograph over the era's other visual media. And certainly, we, you know, we discussed and saw many of these photographs uh, yesterday, and particularly as, as, as uh, Tony Lee uh, made the, the, the distinction, useful distinction of the, of, um, of the battlefront uh, photographer, photographs. Uh, there were this bevy of photographers who accompanied the Union Army 
uh, and of course historians and filmmakers implicitly therefore have judged the engravings published weekly in the illustrated press as opaque, hard to decipher, and inauthentic. In many ways, I, I think it can be argued, and we've certainly seen this uh, up to this day, down to this day, whatever way you want to view the descent or the, or the rise from Ken Burns' original documentary, uh, of a failure to use the other visual media, the visual, the, the, in, in fact, the overwhelmingly larger number of, 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 of visual media that actually uh, both reported on and, of course, expressed the ideas around the Civil War. And I think the notion of inauthenticity in particular comes up here. I think it, it, a lot of this, of course, can be ascribed to the ubiqu ubiquity of combat uh, photographs since World War II and, of course, the immediacy of television, uh, and particularly starting with Vietnam and now Internet coverage of our current many conflicts. Um, Photography has long, I think, now been assumed and presumed to be naturalized as the legitimate, authentic, and reliable visual medium of war. But let's consider the visual media of war through mid-19th century eyes. Uh, clearly, the, as in the case of the Harvest of, uh, Harvest of Death, which, which of course is, is in uh, Gardner's sketchbook, uh, you know, the famous photographs of bloated bodies in the smoldering buildings presented the public with new and gruesome evidence of the effect of modern warfare, as Tony, you know, discussed yesterday. But the extremely slow exposure time and precarious web play process that, uh, that he, of course, described and you read about in Keith Davis's uh, article, among others, uh, the, that slow process limited what they could show. Uh, not to mention, by the way, the impracticality of preparing wet plates, setting up a camera, and immediately developing the plates in the midst of a battle, as uh, commented on, in fact, in, in, in Frank Leslie's, in, uh, rather, Frank Leslie's Budget of Fun, which was one of his humor magazines in 1863. The, you can't see the caption here, but it says, Accident to our special photographer, just as he had nearly succeeded in getting the carte de visite of an exploding shell. <laughs> uh, that was, it rarely happened, of course, in practicality, since people knew that you couldn't set up a camera, let alone cap capture action um, uh, on the battlefield. Uh, this is obviously something that, that, that uh, uh, contemporary commentators were very, very well aware of, and indeed the London Times observed in 1862 that and this is the London Times speaking, the photographer who follows in the wake of modern armies must be content with conditions of repose and with the still life which remains when the fighting is over. Now, photographs, of course, are an invaluable and to our eyes, you know, gripping part of the pictorial record of the war. But for the northern public during the war, the engravings in the Illustrated Press, now this is, of course, my commercial for the Illustrated Press, <laughs> which totaled about 6,000 by one estimate, uh, were actually, in many cases, often more accessible and usually more immediately available than the photographs. Um, we have a tendency to think along uh, the notion that um, the event took place and the visual reporting of it uh, in, in the pictorial press, you know, slowly, pokily appeared uh, weeks later, when indeed, usually within two weeks, sometimes within a week. Uh, part of the confusion here is due to historians for a long time reading the dating of the publications uh, as being the beginning of the week of the publication as opposed to the end of the week. So the realization has come to us now that in many cases, 
the immediacy is quite startling, and we'll, we'll get to it shortly about, well, how did, you know, how did that take place? So for, for what it's worth, the pictorial press, uh, you know, and I, won't, I won't go into you know, great detail here, but covered a huge amount of information in large part, as, as Thompson discussed in, in, uh, in the article that you read, which is based, by the way, on, on his book, The Image of War, which I think remains, even though there have been some excellent books published subsequently, a book written in 1861 to mark the centenary of the Civil War, I think remains still the best book on, uh, on uh, pictorial reporting of the war as, as, a, as a social as a social and a, I guess you could say, uh, a, uh, a professional history, as a history of journalism. Uh, but, of course, there, be, there was not only, of course, the, the mundane and the peculiar life of, of Billy Yank, in this case, actually, this is Sanitary Commission, uh, uh, you know, volunteers uh, on the, uh, at the camps, but, of course, a lot of the home front, including, of course, the sewing of garments and <coughs> Sanitary Commission fairs, uh, rallies, 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 uh, and of course, uh, you know, certain uh, certain events, uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, violent domestic events, such as, of course, the July 1863 draft riots, which will that uh, Sarah and I will be uh, talking about. Uh, I'll be talking about when Sarah and I uh, present uh, tomorrow. Um, such um, engravings, along with the ubiquitous portraits of Union officers and politicians, not only presented information and narrative, they also served as a popular art. I know somebody, uh, I think two days ago, asked about the, this question. Harper's Weekly at least made the claim in 1865 that all over the country, of course a self-serving claim, thousands and thousands of the faces and events which the war had made illustrious are tacked and pinned and pasted upon the humblest of walls. Um, now, at the same time, uh, the pictorial press's popularity uh, extended to the front lines. Um, I, I think uh, uh, the realization is that uh, if, if the, if the uh, pictorial press was really popular on the home front, it was really popular in the front lines. Of course, we were talking about the Union Army. Uh, aside from... Um, and what makes it interesting is they were popular across the ranks, whereas most publications... Um, in uh, the 19th century, uh, not unlike uh, many of the publications in the 20th century, had very specific literary markets to which they were targeted. Uh, the pictorial papers tended to have a much broader readership for obvious reasons in terms of the types of ways that information could be gleaned from them. And of course, the U.S. Sanitary Commission distributed illustrated uh, newspapers, but many soldiers actually subscribed to the weeklies. Uh, needless to say, they often got their copies quite late. Uh, and many of them, as this photograph actually shows, uh, bought them directly from sutlers and newsboys who followed the troops, you know, usually getting on a train and then following the troops. Actually, in this case, this is, a, this is somebody reading, of course, posing, reading uh, Harper's Weekly. Um, so we actually have documentation that is on, on, on the battlefield. Uh, and they, they were sold for ridiculously high amounts of money. There, there's estimates, and in some cases, they raised the price, these are these dealers, to 250%. No matter how high they raised them, the, the, uh, the, uh, they would be sold out. Now, part of the reason for this is because, uh, and this is indicative of the pictorial press throughout the 19th century, uh, are the notion of circulation num numbers, which, by the way, are based largely on the publishers, so they're quite suspicious <laughs> anyhow. Um, nonetheless, 
uh, underestimate the amount of readers that actually read, read one copy. And one of the things that the pictorial press um, did, uh, uh, and uh, they were all subscription-based to a great extent. That's how really they survived. They, weren't, they didn't survive in advertising, which is a big change in, of course, uh, magazine uh, printing by the, the end of the, the 19th century. Uh, but they, they survived by also association um, subscriptions in other ways. So not only on the war front do we know that, in fact, when these, when these, were, uh, when these were sold and distributed, that not one, one person read them, but many soldiers read them, so that by the time, as one, uh, as one uh, British traveler observed, by the time each copy had been read, passed from one soldier to another, all that remained were tatters of newsprint. This is also true in the North as well. So... Uh, not to get into great detail about this, but and I know more about this in the Gilded Age, I must admit, than I know in the Civil War. Uh, we have lots of instances of the reporting of, um, uh, for example, Sunday in Pittsburgh, where in, in one of the main um, thoroughfares, all the news de- dealers put the, posted the Illustrated Press outside of their uh, their sheds or their or their you know places of work. And on Sunday, of course, uh, the only day off for many workers, working families would walk by and read it on the walls of the of the uh, of of those uh, news dealers. In a similar fashion, we have a lot of information of public libraries. Of course, uh, they weren't as uh, they weren't as vast as before, but particularly in New England, for example, public libraries already had been established, and uh, and uh, you know being read in that occasion, trade unions and other organizations uh, also buying copies that were read by large numbers of people. Um, they were also, by the way, uh, read in the Confederacy, uh, even with. Um, uh, even with uh, the blockade, uh, they managed. They sometimes managed to make their way into the Confederacy, where, of course, they were. You know, they were greeted with you know incredible venom. And I think Thompson, um, in the article, quotes um, uh, um, Elizabeth Frances Andrews in Georgia, who uh, stated that the pictures in Harper's Weekly and Frank Leslie's tell more lies than Satan himself was ever the father of. Uh, she wrote in her journal, I get in such a rage when I look at them that sometimes I take off my slipper and beat this senseless paper paper with it. So in comparison, and we finally get to the Confederacy here, uh, only a relative handful of the images uh, were produced in the South representing the Civil War behind Confederate lines. In September 1862, uh, the Southern Illustrated News was published in uh, Richmond, Virginia, an eight-page weekly that aimed, among other cultural goals, to delineate a pictorial record of the Confederacy at war. They were going to replace the, uh, the, the unreliable, as, as they stated, uh, northern pictorial press. But, of course, a face with losses of previously su- uh, supplied by, the northern in- by northern industry and cut off by the naval blockade from obtaining alternative supplies from Europe the Confederacy did not ha- possess the necessary resources for publishing any, any pictorial paper like Frank Leslie's or Harper's Weekly or the New York Illustrated News. They were sh- hampered from the start by shortages of paper, ink, and printing presses, and they were also hampered by they didn't have any engravers in the South. Indeed, one of the uh, troubling and interesting uh, indications of the collaboration of northern business and, and, and southern slavery was the amount of uh, 
illustrated material, pro-slavery illustrated material that was for all intents and purposes completely published in the South in the years leading up to the Civil War. Indeed, to the extent to which um, the little squibs that appeared on the uh, runaway ads in the Southern newspapers were all made in the North and then sold to Southern publishers. So um, they didn't even have the engravers to make the little runaway slave, you know, with the with the bindle stiff um, carried on the back uh, on on his or, or her back. Um, in, indeed, uh, the Southern Illustrated News published uh, a a notice in July 1863 offering craftsmen, and this is what they offered: the highest salaries ever paid in this country for good engravers. Ultimate, uh, and that ultimately failed to elicit much of a response. So it ended up, of course, that, that these papers were largely composed of letterpress, usually with one portrait, not particularly well done, of a, a Confederate general or a crudely engraved scene on its cover and one cartoon on the back page. Um, and then sometimes the Southern Illustrated News' engraving strangely resembled the illustrations published earlier in the Northern <laughs> Press, as in this purported 18, December 1862 portrait of Confederate General John Morgan, which had appeared <laughs> the previous April in Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper, but was showing Union General Alexander Aspen. So he goes to show you. I used to believe that it was extremely. Separated birth. Right, exactly. Exactly. Have you seen them together at the same time? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just really fast. Why the, the lack of engravers in the South? If there's a demand and they're putting right. out for right. it, is it related to the supply issue? They don't feel like there's going to be enough production? Or what's that about? Well, all, all, all of the major publishers were in the North. Um, uh, and those publishers who, I mean, wood engraving uh, had really sort of begun to take on a life as a, a really inexpensive form of illustration in the 1830s, 1840s. Um, all of them in northern publications. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the, although it was an extremely cheap process, this is the first time, just, just to, to make clear, um, with the with the uh, the wood engraved block, and we'll, we'll talk shortly a, a bit more about how that was produced. Uh, text, letterpress, text, and image for the first time could be printed on the same page. Um, almost almost in every case previously, with with some important exceptions, uh, illustrations had to be published separately. You know, the the individual published prints it might be dropped in, it might be uh, in a very expensive manner placed within. Uh, within a, uh, a book or a publication, but it, it didn't appear uh, along with text. So this was already, you know, an, an important innovation. Another thing is that engraving, uh, the, the coterie of engravers to a great extent were immigrants. In many cases, Leslie was an, an engraver before he came. It was, in fact, the supervising engraver for the Illustrated London News for a time. So there's a, a fair, and by the way, his first job was working for P.T. Barnum. As the and there's always I thought there's a there's a strange similarity between the uh, of, uh, the uh, Frank Leslie's and Barnum's Museum in many ways, um, not to mention that he covered Barnum a lot. Um, but uh, that was a good example, though, of the uh, the traffic of engravers coming to the United States. In many cases, people who wanted to uh, start their own their own papers, which they couldn't do in a much smaller market, you know. Uh, in England. Uh, so I, I think this is a, a lot to do with both 
the, the direction where people are coming from, the market is, or the production's all, all in the north. There's a, a certainly then a good deal of talk, even just a little bit before uh, secession, about, well, we really need to have all these guys, but they, they simply do not have them. And it is a very, very, uh, you know, a, a, a great skill uh, that involves, among other things, obviously, sort of working your way up. Um, and, and indeed, uh, although we shouldn't get lost in this, there's also a sort of world of semi-skilled engravers, many of them women, that are, for example, cultivated very early on in Cooper Union here in New York City. Uh, and we still don't know exactly the extent to which uh, a lot of that work is, is for, for all intents and purposes, sort of shuttled out to places like Cooper Institute that will do some of the work uh, for these publications. I don't think they usually do it for the Illustrated Press, but they would do it for a lot of these other publications. And that's one reason that they were cheaper as well. But there was nothing like that in, in the South whatsoever. Um, so, in any case, the, the Southern Illustrated News ceased publication by November 1864, uh, and uh, this is greatly due to the scarce, uh, scarcity of resources, which were undermined by the Confederate Post Office and the Treasury Department. Uh, and this was also true of a number, a very small number of other illustrated publications, primarily, for example, the satirical Southern Punch, which was obviously built, you know, based on, um, on, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> um, on the British publication, and in many cases, simply purloined a lot of the uh, cartoons in, uh, although they'd re-engraved them in much more crude fashion, uh, in the um, in in their pages. There was, however one publication that supplied extensive pictorial coverage of the Confederacy. But its origins were lay really far away from the South, and its engravings were viewed by only a small, another, small number of Southern readers. Uh, with the outbreak of war, the Illustrated London News dispatched uh, Frank Vizzatelli, who was the younger brother of the British Weekly's co-founder, to cover the conflict. Uh, he had uh, he had recently covered uh, Garibaldi's campaign in Italy, uh, and he soon witnessed. Uh, this, he, he arrived in time to witness the the Union rout at Bull Run, and if, and indeed after he had uh, drawn and then subsequently the the engravings were published in Illustrated London News of fairly uncomplimentary images of. Union forces running away the route, the Union route after Bull Run. He was denied permission to accompany McClellan's uh, planned advance into Virginia. And uh, frustrated, he went south and he ended up depicting the Confederacy at war from the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862 all the way to Jefferson Davis's ignominious flight from Richmond in 1865. Um, he often, and I think this is something that's uh, useful uh, particularly for uh, for us now, uh, and and also for teaching, um, he in many cases offered uh, perspectives that were the flip side of what was appearing in, in in the northern press. I mean, this is a good example. It's and this is a good example also of how murky these images look, uh, you know, online as opposed to uh, in, uh, on, on paper. But this is uh, the grim aftermath of the assault by the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment at Fort Wagner in Charleston Harbor in July 1863. So this is his, the engraving which uh, depicted the ditch, as it says here. And, 
and on the southern slope of Fort Wagner, Charleston Harbor, the morning after the assault. And indeed, there's, uh, and it's, there's an interesting comparison. There, there's the, here's his original, his original sketch of the, uh, of the unsuccessful attack of, uh, you know, which of course it was depicted in glory and, uh, and, and was heavily reported in, in the northern press at, at, at this period, you know, at this period of time. Um, so there's a, there, there's a great value here in times of what, what he presents. Um, it's important to note that except for William Howard Russell, who was the, uh, the famous war correspondent for the London Times, who was, for, for all intents and purposes, kicked out of the United States in 1862, but he was the only British reporter who was pro-Union. Every other British reporter in the United States during the Civil War was pro-Confederate. And Vizitelli was a particularly pro-Confederate reporter um, and supporter of the the Southern cause. Uh, He changed his sympathies, he claimed, after witnessing the Union occupation of Memphis. But he also, uh, along with his war reporting, was very sympathetic to uh, the society that was built on slavery that lay at the heart of secession. And indeed, in in, uh, in illustrations such as this one, you know, romanticized. This one was called "Family Worship in a Plantation in South Carolina," again published in the Illustrated London News. So altogether, uh, the, the Illustrated London News published 133 engravings based on his sketches. And by the way, what we what sketches we have of his are now in Harvard. And the only reason why those still exist is because they were not in England because during the Blitz. Uh, you know, during World War II, uh, that was one of the archives that was hit by, uh, you know, German bombs. And uh, so for what it's worth, uh, all of his other sketches, the only sketches were the extent were the sketches that were bought, you know, privately and and transferred and given to Harvard. They're, by the way, all online. You can see those sketches uh, online. Um, If you just type in Frank Visitelli, uh, I think it's one of the first things that comes up is uh, is the, um, the Harvard collection. Which, which also shows both the, the sketches and, and the reporting on when the, uh, although it's a fraction, of course, of the sketches that, that, that he had done. Um, and a few of the sketches, I should mention, did get uh, uh, reproduced in Harper's Weekly, much to the consternation of the Illustrated London News when some of the, the ships that they were on being dispatched back to England were, were you know, uh, were um, caught in the blockade and Harper's Weekly Published them because you know they had some, they had some free, they had some free sketches. So uh, while he, while Vizitelli gained, <coughs> excuse me, some fame in the South, it was the more numerous um, special artists of the North that uh, that uh, gained a reputation and a big public rec- recognition, as Thompson and and Grover both discussed in their articles. Uh, to some extent. Uh, for their own self-proclaimed exploits. They were not bad in, in sort of, uh, you know, selling them. But they were actually a very small part of the so-called Bohemian Brigade of reporters who peppered the waterfront. And they carried a particularly dashing, uh, they, they were particularly dashing and theatricalized, you know, figures, uh, positioned somewhere between the military and, and the public. Uh, this is a Winslow Homer who preferred usually actually not to do combat. Um, sketching... For what it's worth, this is a vignette he did of apparently the two tallest soldiers uh, who were brothers uh, in the in the Northern Army. As, as I say, he had a tendency at times to 
he put caught as we have discussed you know some of the particularly uh, as the war progressed some of the more striking you know images of of, of war or certainly even of of not war but uh, 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 but of camp life uh, and then a lot of uh, fairly um, uh, uh, let's say less significant but an indication of sort of that other life in the camps um, the uh, certainly the the, uh, the the pictorial journalists would do uh, did a lot of her sort of reporting on uh, on sort of the perils and, and their activity. I mean, for example, Henry Lovey, who was uh, Leslie's one of Leslie's special artists, reported in December 1861. And, and what is of course useful, and this is an in, an indication also of the utility of the relationship of text to image. And that's what's also interesting about the pictorial press. It is about text and image, even though at times they're either at war with one another or they're, uh, or they're in cooperation, is that some of these artists often write in you know, their own, as, by the way, Visitelli did with his, his coverage in the Illustrated London News. You're getting also the experience of the reporting as well as the personal observation that in some cases is suggesting how you interpret it but we'll get into this whole question about whether what you end up seeing is actually their interpretation anymore. Anyhow, he reported, I've traveled in all directions from Western Maryland to the Indian territories, made the acquaintance of a great many different divisions of the army, and so informed myself of their movements so, so as to be at the right place at the right time. All this has kept me moving incessantly. I've spent more than three months in the open air, sleeping in tents or bivouacs, and have ridden nearly a thousand miles on horseback. A special artist's life is certainly not one of elegant leisure, but I like action and have no objection to a spice of danger. Obviously, this is early on in the war when uh, he has neither experienced much danger yet or, uh, or hardship. So they often represented themselves in, uh, in their own sketches, and occasionally they were photographed. This is Alfred Wode, uh, who started for, uh, working for the New York uh, Illustrated News and then became uh, Harper's Weekly's, one of Harper's Weekly's um, uh, artists. And, uh, I mean, this is almost the, you know, the particular get-up. I mean, it's, you know, there's usually a revolver somewhere in the, in the image and a canteen and a knife and, of course, binoculars, which are extremely important. And the drawing pad, the hat's always rakishly uh, to one side, and they're always, you know, heavily bearded. Uh, but what's sort of interesting about it is that th- these guys inaugurated the dashing image of the wartime correspondent. This is where, this is it. This is where it comes from. Um, with which minor variations, you know, we have uh, to this day. Um, Leslie said that we have had since the commencement of the, of the present war, this is in 1864, over 80 artists engaged in making sketches for our paper and have published nearly 3,000 pictures of battle sieges, bombardments, and other scenes incidental to the war. Well, that's a good example of this completely unreliable statement. Um, because, uh, of course, when, when they said that, that they had, what was the figure, 80 artists? Well, uh, the vast majority of those artists were amateurs, uh, soldiers in the field, who sent in sketches, uh, particularly in, in, the, in the early start part of the war, uh, when, when so many of the images that were in the, three pub, in the three illustrated newspapers were contributions mailed to New York from military outposts. But once the war started, the pictorial papers quickly organized the coterie of artists, uh, although it was not a huge number. By one estimate, there were 30 special artists who contributed more than 10 drawings to, to the three illustrated weeklies, Harper's Weekly, 
altogether numbered 10 artists, the New York Illustrated News 4, and Leslie's an impressive 16, although uh, because Leslie was an unreliable um, employer in terms of paying, uh, he was always shedding artists to the other publications if they weren't just simply walking off, walking off the job. Now, uh, the life of the, of the special artist was adventurous, um, but it proved, of course, to be dangerous. They were in this middling position as sort of, you know, uh, civilians. They were neither civilians, and, of course, they were not soldiers. Uh, and they provided, there was a lot of instances where they were, in fact, in, in their lives were in great hazard. Uh, they were often harassed by hostile officers. And this is perhaps the place to note the recent use of the term embedded uh, when referring to these, uh, for these guys to describe their situation, and it's not accurate. Uh, and I only raise it because it has now become part of the, uh, of the lexicon. In fact, uh, although uh, in, in many ways it's a terrific book, the latest book on the, um, on, uh, the, uh, the, the special artists, um, uh, Harry Katz's uh, Civil War sketchbook, uses that term and, uh, and others have as well. The term, of course, that is embedded refers to the policy invented by the U.S. military in the lead-up to the Iraq War, so this is very recent history, to control the numbers, movements, and access of journalists, which was supposedly a step forward from the virtual news blackout that occurred during the first Gulf War in 1991, as well as the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan. Now, of course, there were many reporters <coughs> who rejected those conditions and restrictions during the Iraq War, and in a similar fashion, the Civil War special artists were required to seek permission of commanding officers to be on the scene, and they were, by the way, often rejected, as I believe Thompson discusses in his article. For example, Henry Lovey uh, at Leslie's presented his credentials to General Sherman in October 1861, and Sherman declared, you fellows make the best spies that can be bought. Jeff Davis owes more to you newspapermen than to his army, and immediately expelled uh, the artist from Louisville. Um, there was only one instance of overt government censorship of the pictorial press. There was a lot of uh, instances of, uh, of government censorship of the press in general, but only one of the pictorial press. And it occurred, this is the culprit, it occurred in April 1862 during General McClellan's Peninsula campaign when Secretary of War Edwin Stanton suppressed the sale of Harper's Weekly after the publication of this bird's-eye view of the Army's siege of Yorktown, showing the location of Union fortifications, artillery, and combat units. Stanton claimed, and I think it was the New York Times which first brought this up, that the published engraving assisted the Confederates in their shelling and successful routing of McClellan's forces uh, from the area. But in a subsequent showdown meeting between Stanton and Fletcher Harper of Harper's Weekly in Washington, D.C., uh, Harper won out. Uh, it's it, it speculated that, among other things, Harper pointed out that, indeed, it was probably more useful for, uh, for both union morale and for the Lincoln administration for Harper's Weekly, which is a devoutly a Republican publication, to, uh, to continue to publish. But with that exec exception, aside from seeking authorization to be there, the special artists roamed widely, and there was little military control over what they covered and how they covered it. So that's my spiel about why embedded is not uh, is not accurate. Now there was, of course, editorial editorial censorship. That is in in, in the home office. 
um, when the papers chose not to publish certain sketches. Now, to be sure, I should say, they often published, didn't publish sketches because there was not enough room. You know, you'd send a bevy of sketches that, to them and you were, you know, lucky if one got published. And I should say, the artists basically got paid by publication although there was a wide range of what their payment was. So obviously they were anxious, not simply for ego purposes, for it to be, to be, uh, to be published. I know this may be hard to see, but uh, any thoughts about why this... This is one that was not published. Uh, th this is by Arthur Lumley, uh, and he sent, this to, he sent this to Leslie's. Can you read the text at the top? Well, if I read the text at the top, it's going to give it away. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can, but I, but I, and I will, but what, sorry? They're looting. Okay, good, very good. <laughs> yes, this is, uh, as it was called, this, the sacking of Fredericksburg, um, and it was, it showed the Union troops sacking Fredericksburg, Virginia in December 1862, and this was one of a, a number of cases, particularly early on in the war, when they were, you know, just not going to do anything that was particularly uncomplimentary in terms of, uh, in terms of reproductions. Um, I won't go into the hazards. I think that that Thompson covers very well the hazards of, of you know doing the public, uh, uh, of doing the work that uh, that these um, reporters did at this period of time. Uh, yeah. uh, Arthur Lumley, L U M L E Y. Uh, he was hardly alone though in getting his sketches. You know, uh, certain sketches being rejected. Um, there were a few. Uh, <coughs> there were a few. <coughs> excuse me of the artists who were um, wounded, uh, and one of them was killed. Uh, Frank Leslie's James O'Neill uh, died after being captured by Quantrill's raiders in Kansas during attack on black troops. Um, and of course, as Thompson uh, mentioned, there was, uh, you know, uh, repeated, you know, uh, like, like the troops themselves, debil debilitating bouts of illness um, and, uh, and of course, discomfort and deprivation that certainly exacerbated, the, you know, the, uh, the health of, the, of these of these these relatively young young men. Um, but of course, the greatest challenge is, <coughs> excuse me, as Thompson also just grab a, some lukewarm coffee. The um, the biggest challenge, of course, was actually capturing uh, capturing battle. With, with the exception of Frank Vizzatelli in the Illustrated London News and, and Thomas Nast, Nast had, uh, as a very, very young man, been dispatched to Italy as well to cover Garibaldi by the New York Illustrated News. Those are the only two guys who had had any previous combat uh, experience. None of the other special artists had ever experienced you know, warfare, let alone uh, attempted to draw its particulars under fire. Um, so I, I mean, to, you know, to cut to the chase here, uh, the, the original concept was okay. Uh, and Edwin Forbes, <laughs> I think there's a quote from Edwin Forbes in in, um, in Thompson, where he basically says, you know, I I expected I'd arrive, I'd find a really convenient place where I could, you know, sketch, and uh, I qu quickly discovered that that sometimes required actually. When he was lucky, is in 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 certain battles such as Gettysburg, where you could go to an elevation and with binoculars attempt to uh, cover uh, with some safety the events. This is actually a sketch, I believe it's by Theodore Davis, way after the war. These are memoirs where obviously he's much closer <laughs> to the action of um, what was this called? Does it have a name? Um, this was called. 
Sketching Under Fire at Antietam, and this was published in McClure's uh, magazine in 1904. So this is you know much later in terms of in, in terms of uh, in, in terms of the drawing. So where possible, they tried to find an elevated position, but of course they discovered that in most instances, uh, or certainly many instances. Uh, there was not a convenient, you know, ridge nearby that they could uh, actually, uh, uh, and they often found themselves uh, right in the middle of fighting. Uh, more to the point, they also discovered that warfare, uh, despite the model of history painting, was chaotic, uh, I'm stating the obvious here, and less perceptible than those conventions in painting, that there was a real challenge here in, cre in creating some type, type of pictorial coherence in capturing in representing combat. And in fact, when the fighting is over is when the, their job really you know, uh, took, took flight because then they spent hours usually moving around the battlefield, interviewing people, interviewing soldiers uh, to ascertain some order in the confusion. So that, for example, Henry Lovey wrote in a letter accompanying his packet of sketches depicting the Battle of Shiloh, I commenced on the extreme left wing and visited every division, obtained guides, listened to all stories from all sides, and made upwards of 20 local sketches of positions and scenery, including all the battlegrounds, for there were many, and send them to you in something like their logical and chronological relation, a task of no little difficulty, obviously he would like to get them published, where nobody knows what was done by anybody else. <clears throat> So, based on, um, on observation and secondhand description, these sketches were rendered hurriedly in pencil shorthand with scribbled notations or, or time permitting, they were you know, organized and, and ordered into more developed compositions and washes and white on colored paper, and they were mailed back to New York. So, uh, this is a sketch by Alfred Wode of the attack of the Louisiana Tigers on the battery of the 11th Corps at Gettysburg in, in July 1863. Now, what, what is useful about this one, aside from sort of giving a notion, you can see it's hard to see here, but, you know, you give a they give a suggestion of further bodies here. Uh, this doesn't have too many, I think, notation, nota notations in part because there's also no scenery, but, you know, there will often be something on the side here that says, you know, lots of bayonets or uh, a wagon over here or more to the point, they'll draw one horse and say five more dead horses, you know, over here or things like this. But what this also shows is, is the next step of the process. You send this back to, to um, the, uh, the offices in New York City, um, and particularly if this is meant to be a large engraving, that is, you know, a full-page engraving, or for that matter, you know, a half-page engraving or a double-page engraving, and of course it would then have to be engraved. Um, this is my favorite image of an engraver because it actually probably suggests how insane they, they, uh, you know, their work was not only do not only um, understand that this is, um, <coughs> and I apologize to the art historians for for this crude description. Uh, this is a um, this is an incredibly labor intensive process that uh, involves cutting out the white parts of the image. So when you see those fine lines, you're cutting around the lines. Those are the, it's a relief process. So what is not carved out is what appears black. Now, if you, as even a crude engraving like this suggests, the amount of work involved in just cutting out to leave these, the, you know, these, um, these raised, uh, these raised line, and particularly a process of very hard wood. This is boxwood, uh, which was, um, uh, 
uh, imported and uh, usually not very large in size, but um, uh, ba basically the, the process involves wood engraving allows a, a greater uh, flexibility in terms of the line because unlike wood that is cut along the grain where you're required as in woodcuts really to work along the grain of the wood you could there's no grain of the wood if it's being cut you know laterally so these small boxwood trees would be decimated and cut um, and cut laterally so you had a process and they were much harder and therefore the wood engraving would you know would would last longer um, that involved a, pro a very, very long uh, and, and laborious process, obviously often involving looking through a magnifying glass. And if you were working at night in particular, working during window during the day, usually with, um, uh, with oil lamps that were uh, behind globes of water. If you ever saw uh, Andy Rooney's in uh, Thomas Edison uh, biography, uh, this was a more popular film when I was a kid, uh, there was a scene where supposedly Thomas Edison invented this, but <laughs> no, he didn't. But uh, I think his, his sister has to have an operation. The doctor doesn't have enough light, and he puts all of these globes of water in front of the light, and the doctor says, this is a miracle. I have the light you know, to operate on, on your sister and save her life. Uh, no, they were already had figured this out, uh, but this is how the, they were able to do that work um, in um, uh, in the shop, uh, usually lying on a cushion, by the way, because you would move the wood around. Having said that, because these boxwood images were really small and you wanted to get those images out quickly, uh, the um, the lines you see here indicate the number of blocks that actually made up the whole engraving. And Leslie was said to have invented this process, probably not true, uh, where you created these larger, probably come to this experience, if it's true, from the Illustrated London News, of creating these composite blocks made up of smaller blocks, which meant that not only could you make bigger engravings, but you could break it up into a team of engravers. Uh, so it was an industrialized process. So not only do, did you have the question, which we'll get to in a moment, of somebody sketching, re-sketching the image onto uh, a, a wood block. So you have the original, original artist sketch. One or two artists did their own, like Winslow Homer, did his own sketching on, because he usually ran back to New York City and he would do his own sketching. Most of them were re-sketched uh, uh, to fit the size of the block by another artist, then they were, um, and in many cases, it was more than one artist because there were experts in drawing animals, there were experts in drawing machinery, there were experts in drawing uniforms. And in a similar fashion, then they'd be broken up into <coughs> a group of engravers working vociferously with, a, with an art supervisor who then, after they were all united back together, this is the back of the block, so showing how they, were, they would all be clipped together and... Uh, a final uh, master engraver would make all the um, continuity of the lines uh, across the blocks. One thing you'll often see in engravings, uh, you may even see in these, you'll see what are called ghost lines, which are where you can see how the block, the, actually the lines of the blocks. Um, but in, in any case, that's, um, that was the process, that was the, uh, that was the, uh, the industrialized process. So I'm, I'm just raising the notion, keep in mind here, so authorial artistic expression begins to become something that's questionable if a process that's already broken up into two, many steps with, it's very hard to this point with some exceptions, figuring out who made what determinations when in terms of what was 
you know what was uh, that what was represented even from the even from the um, uh, from the original sketch. Uh, although images were occasionally altered uh, to spare readers gruesome details, most of the time the alterations were relatively minor. There were, of course, notorious changes and exceptions. Uh, for example, this one involved. Alfred Wodes, Wodes, who was, this is Harper's Weekly, a sketch showing a surgical procedure on the Antietam battlefield. So I, you can sort of see this. There's a surgical procedure over here. The, the body's being carried off there. Uh, the battlefield sketch. Uh, and once in the hands of Harper's Weekly's office artists, and it is believed that it was Thomas Nast who spent most of his time actually not on the battlefield, in fact, very little time, but actually reproducing many of the artists' uh, artwork onto the block. Uh, once it got to Harper's Weekly, the final engraving, uh, you can see the position of the body was switched around uh, to spare, I guess, uh, to hide the stump of the, <coughs> of the amputated leg. And there were, of course, a lot of inaccuracies. Again, I think Thompson discussed this to, to a great extent. Um, uh, indeed, uh, uh, Leslie's uh, William Wode uh, uh, now, when I say inaccuracies here, this, these are inaccuracies that are actually more on the sketch pad, not the inaccuracies that were that were uh, necessarily in the engraving, where where those the inaccuracies on the sketch pad were reproduced. Wode reported uh, the hostility to artist correspondence was mixed with, in some cases, low regard of their abilities. So, for example, he reported that, and this is his quote. General Patrick told me he should have kicked the artist out of camp, but that General Meade, to whom the artist's sketches were shown, said they were so unlike the places they were intended for, and so bad they could do no harm. <laughs> and indeed, as, as Thompson also mentioned, uh, you know the the lower uh, the the ranks, particularly the lower ranks of the army, who enthusiastically read the pictorial papers, were equally pleased uh, and relished pointing out the engravings inaccuracies and fantasies. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff, neg negligible, you know, uh, uh, errors, you know, misplaced scabbards and inaccurate saddles and the wrong uniforms were constantly commented on. Although when they were in winter quarters, the artists spent a lot of time drawing saddles and drawing scabbards and so on because there wasn't a lot else going on. <laughs> but it was a larger representation of combat, and Alice began discussing this uh, um, in the beginning of the week, that at times raised the greatest mirth. Uh, and such as this, this is uh, published in Harper's Weekly, again, not surprisingly, at the start of the war in June 1861, uh, that, that depicted officers valiantly leading their men, you know, into enemy fire, you know, with their, as, as Thompson dis uh, discussed, you know, with, in shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder alignment, or pictures like this one showing cavalrymen charging forward, firing rifles and swinging sabers while exhibiting an incredible ability to stay in their saddles at the same, <laughs> at the same time, not to mention, you know, fire fire their rifles. The Army and Navy Journal commented in 1864, if all the terrific hand-to-hand -hand encounters which we have seen for two or three years displayed in the pages of our popular weeklies had actually occurred, the combatants on each side would long ago have mutually annihilated each other. So even with all the, 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 you know, the deaths that were um, the impossibility of many of these scenes. Uh, this question of Accuracy was an important issue for the illustrated papers, which consistently published soldiers' testimonials subscribing to the correct nature of even images like this, of the engraving portrayals, but it would seem to lesser concern to, uh, to the illustrated newspapers 
um, then the question of authenticity, and we began sort of raise, you were discussing, beginning to discuss this um, this morning. Throughout the war, the papers constantly defended their illustrations as based on eyewitness observation while simultaneously and ceaselessly, of course, attacking each other as being inaccurate and inauthentic, as being fabrications. Uh, as I think you saw in the Grover article, Vanity Fair really loved to, uh, the Vanity Fair, the, the, the uh, satirical publication. Um, not the Vanity Fair now, or the Vanity Fair, uh, the many Vanity Fairs, this was uh, uh, the, one of the middle ones. Um, they persistently ragged <laughs> the Pretoria Press in a cartoon showing artists drawing toy soldiers on the spot. That was one. Or my favorite, or diligently recording a ship explosion having clairvoyantly predicted its destruction. As a consequence of the charges and countercharges, the papers increasingly ascribed authorship of their pictures to individual artists. It's a and it's interesting because it's a strategy that simultaneously occurred in the uh, in the daily press, uh, beginning with the New York New York Herald's innovation of reporters' bylines. There were no reporters' bylines before this. Uh, they, they instituted that in in 1863. Uh, now, Leslie adopted, of course, his own, in a Barnum-esque fashion, adopted his own particular method to establish authenticity. He began to publish, uh, to issue to his artist pre-stamped drawing pads, bearing in the lower left corner of the sheet a declaration that the sketch was actually, as, they, as it said, made on the spot by one of its special artists, in my favorite part, and that he owned the copyright. Just to make sure. Now, part of that reason also was because uh, the second part of that declaration, owning the copyright, he was concerned, uh, as were each of them, about preventing the other publication from using the artist's work as, 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 uh, as that was one of their concerns, that they would each be stealing from each other. And that became actually a realistic problem uh, uh, after Leslie's donated 500 drawings for sale at the U United States Sanitary Commission Fair in New York City. Um, and the, the, this is the selling of some of these sketches. Uh, I guess I'm assuming that that's why so many sketches ended up in private collections or, and didn't end up in the Library of Congress and other places like that because they were actually sitting in attics and you know people having, families having bought them. And luckily, many, many of them, many of, many of them were, were saved. Um, but indeed, uh, the criticism and defenses about accuracy notwithstanding, the engravings did cha <coughs> change over the course of the war, as Alice began to, to talk about uh, on Monday. And in the face of mounting casualties and, of course, the stark brutalities of war, the romanticism of those early engravings, where combatants assumed the classic poses of academic painting, gave way to less lyrical uh, Compositions, and I know you. you I think I, I think Susan raised this this image uh, earlier uh, this morning. Uh, this is uh, the image of uh, farm families examining the the dead uh, Maryland, and actually the title is Maryland and Pennsylvania farmers visiting the battlefield of Antietam, based on a sketch by Frank Shell, uh, published in Frank Leslie's, which of course portrayed the carnage, <coughs> highlighting the corpses. That although they may not have been dismembered, were in the you know twisted and grotesque uh, forms uh, uh, of rigor mortis, uh, as well as showing, of course, the morbid curiosity you know of of locals. And similarly, the New York Illustrated News did not spare its readers the horrors of a battlefield hospital. Uh, this is uh, an engraving from 1862, May 31st, 1862, where you can see the legs, the legs. Uh, 
of course, the amputated legs uh, under, under. I think there, there's been a notion many times how the pictorial press uh, spared readers, as we saw in the case, of course, of the Woad skits, but there's a fair uh, amount of material, and we'll see a few more of them, I'm not going to wallow in the gruesome, but that certainly uh, there are an equally number of instances where, in fact, th these images were shown. Yeah? Presumably, I mean, the amputation is occurring because the leg's badly damaged, yeah? Yeah, these, I mean, I, I'm, you mean not just for the fun of it? or? <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, my point being that we see these limbs lying on the floor, they look whole. Oh, well, yes and no. I mean, in, in many cases, of course, uh, uh, you know, the, the mini ball, uh, the invention of the mini ball, uh, as, as uh, speaking, you know, the weaponry of the war and the sort of industrialized weaponry of the war, created these horrendous wounds. So that even though, in, in, internally, so that even though um, it might not, it might appear whole, the the leg, because of the nature also of, of medical treatment at the time, and also how much they could do on the battlefield. Uh, might have to go because it's actually completely smashed. Also, there's the other situation of a number of cases where actually wounds have been festering for, you know, for, for some time. I mean, you know, th this becomes an, uh, a <coughs> an interesting trope of the war that until I, until I saw this and one or two other in, in the Illustrated Press, I'd only seen in private diaries of doctors. Of uh, there's one of the name of which I can't remember now. It's a published diary, uh, illustrated diary of a doctor that has this incredible scene of just piles and piles of legs, you know, as, that didn't get carted off and burned over the course of the war. And and, and many of you working, you know, in, in the medical, I'm sure, have very interesting things to, to to probably to you know to contribute in terms of the um, the whole visibility of amputation in in uh, you know not only on the battlefield but of course. Then, you know, uh, in northern and southern society. But at this point, then, let, let's dig a little deeper beyond the question of accuracy uh, and put on our 19th century glasses, I put on my 21st century ones, but, and try to discern what readers got from viewing such images. Okay, so in doing so, we'll have to relinquish the lingering suppositions from these pictures, which now seem, seem so antiquated um, and opaque. Uh, and get away from the notion that I think a lot of the historiography has suggested that uh, contemporary readers were just frustrated by these images and had to wait until the 1890s for photographs to be, you know, they just, this was like, you know, this is torture, you know, this was mass torture for, uh, for 50 years until the halftone process allowed the, you know, the reproduction of photographs. Leslie's wrote in 1859, we do not depend upon the accidental transmission of photographs with a corpse-like literalness, I love that, but this is before the war, but upon our own special artists. And as usual, disingenuous as his remark was because Leslie's did depend on photographs for certainly reference, if nothing else, as source material, it was accurate in describing the, the different represent, representational effect of news engraving. Photographs and engravings based on photographs captured, they captured a moment, and usually a moment of stasis. Now, wood engraved uh, news illustrations presented readers with pictorial narratives of events. So, I know this is sort of hard to see. <coughs> the title is Before Richmond, the Battle at White Oak Swamp Bridge, Monday, June 30th. 
uh, it goes on and on. I just uh, it, it's obviously of Union forces uh, battling Stonewall Jackson's uh, uh, forces. Um, these are, in many ways, they're dramatic and yet they're detailed and diagrammatic. Um, and they and they invited, and, and this is the thing that I think is so hard to get students, in particular, to do now, to examine in detail uh, and to peruse, you know, th- this document because what if, what uh, what makes these uh, certainly, of course, different about <coughs> different from photographs is that they're registering a sequence constituting an event as well as the defining and decisive moments of the event. So basically we're saying here time is extended and cause and effect are being presented in a, in a, in a lot of these images. It is made apparent. So in this case, uh, and this is in July 1862, um, this was showing you tr- retreating Union forces, uh, part of the Seven Days Battle in Virginia, uh, showing the escape of, as I mentioned, the supply trains across the White Oak Swamp Bridge uh, with Union cannon bombarding and destroying the bridge and checking the advance of Stonewall Jackson's forces, not to mention other numerous small incidents. But, I, you know, I raise this because, in, as, as in so many cases, um, it, aside from trying to, cap, to, to present some sort of, even though it, it, there, there's a certain amount of chaos here, some sort of coherence, it's also a sequence. So it is actually, and you can, it's hard to see here, the escaping wagons and their successful escape, the bombardment of the bridge and the stopping and the, and the, and the killing of the, of the retreating southern troops, not only, of course, as always, and we'll look at another one like this, um, shell, uh, shell fire hitting uh, the northern forces, but also, you know, you can't, of course, in reality, show an explosion and somebody running away at the same time. <laughs> tend to have, uh, or not to mention running away successfully. Um, but uh, but the, the notion here that uh, there, is, there is a sequence and a, a notion of a, a, a beginning, middle, or, or end in a number of these uh, images. So this is a more concise and a gorier one, um, uh, but an equally apparent <coughs> excuse me, chain of events uh, this is March 1862, picture of the bombardment of the Confederate Fort Henry. This is the reverse now. This is Confederates being wounded on the, on the Tennessee River. Uh, chronicling in one image the moment of impact, uh, the explosion, and the, gore, uh, the, the escape of some people. Of course, the gory impact is in the case of these, you know, uh, of these dismembered bodies. Um, of a direct hit of on one of the fort's... Um, uh, 42 pound guns, but I mean this is perhaps because of the very nature of an explosion uh, being you know, uh, uh, being hardly a moment where, that has uh, extended uh, where where one has an ability to do anything more than just be a victim. Um, this uh, uh, is a, uh, an even clearer indication of of uh, a number of consecutive events happening. You know, one image. Yeah. The um, now. There are a lot of, speaking of hazards, hazards to this um, type of visual storytelling. Um, this is perhaps not the best example. I, uh, I, I was looking for many others. But, for example, um, particularly uh, images of, of less dramatic, let's say, more ritualized events, such as political meetings and gatherings, speeches, lots of speech. There's lots of engravings of speeches. And like this one, um, the 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 pictorial confusion between response and speech 
was a common problem. In other words, the, the simultaneity um, of cheering crowds and people speaking was a constant, <laughs> pro, uh, a constant issue in terms of the, the engravings uh, storytelling structure. Um, so, you know, this is just the sort of, well, people obviously sort of ran with this in terms of a, uh, of a confusion, or I, or I assume didn't feel that everybody who ever spoke, uh, any public figure ever spoke, could not be heard over the roar of the constant roar of a crowd. Um, but but the, I think the, one of the intrinsic things here that uh, I'd like to raise that has been already raised is the question of the reader's participation which uh, I think was intrinsic to uh, the operation of, of these particular representations. A complete mar- narrative was not contained in any one image. In other words, we're seeing an incident here, to be sure. But the, uh, there was a certain expectation, I would argue, that, uh, that they were dependent upon a broader, I guess I, yeah, I would use the term, meta-narrative that was possessed by the reader, based on print information supplied by the daily press. Frank Leslie's, for example, acknowledged this interaction in editorials commenting on its service to readers <coughs> excuse me, as a supplement to the coverage of daily newspapers, quote, representing pictorially and vividly those things and events which the daily press at best can imperfectly describe. So another way, another way of putting it is, is that the, the pictorial press lent palpability to, uh, to the news, displaying the context and content of events that otherwise remained indistinct in the, I love this notion, hazy realm of, of text. Um, and indeed, in, in, in this relationship the picture, between pictures and text, the pictures' representations often, in fact, I would say usually, predominated. They were often published with only brief descriptions. I mean, there was always a textual description or often a textual description published somewhere, not on the same page, but you know, you know, somewhere in the same publication um, that was applicable to the pictures, <clears throat> but often involved ancillary information such as transcripts of speeches, uh, you know, testimony. Public figures assembled in engraving, engraving often were not named or, uh, uh, or had any accompanying description, or not even included in the accompanying description, in the expectation that readers would identify them from earlier appearances in the publications or in other pictorial sources by that time. And certainly photography played, I think, an important role in this. Photography allows, aside from allowing caricature, which is a separate subject to get to entirely, that is, you can't caricature somebody unless you recognize that person with the exception of certain people like Boss Tweed, who everybody confused with the caricature, um, in, the, in, the same, in, in the same sort of way, uh, the proliferation of the both photographic portrait and <clears throat> its broad, and its broadest proliferation actually was also uh, in cheap lithographs, the photographs being redrawn as lithographs. The, these faces did not, therefore, need exploration. But also... Uh, Readers could gain information unremarked upon in the text about aspects of an event as well as qualitative sense of its context, uh, you know, through um, the detailed rendering of subjects and their dress, the decoration of interiors, this is, of course is not interior, and the architecture and train of exteriors. So in this case, while the accompanying description of this June 1865 Leslie's depiction of foragers or bummers, as they were called, from Sherman's army, focused on their appropriation of a South Carolina planter's gold and silver plates, not to mention the store, his store of fine Madeira wine that the, that the raiders took. 
The cotton bale press looming in the picture's background provided readers with information about the nature and scope of the raided plantation. There's no mention in the description about it, in fact, being a cotton plantation. There's no description in there, uh, of course, about the creation of the bales or the size of the plantation, but it had to be a fairly large plantation for it to, um, to have a press of that size. So in their structure, conventions, and narratives, these wood engravings and news events were equivalents of performances. Uh, certainly paintings, as, as, as you had raised, but I think also performances. They were often framed in proscenium-like compositions. The, scene, the subjects and circumstances layered, much like actors against a resplendent stage set. News images were reminiscent of depictions of theater and opera productions that also appeared in the pictorial press. And the poses and gestures in the engravings conveyed emotions that readers readily recognize, having seen them performed on the popular stage and then, of course, reproduced in theater, lithographs, and engravings dating back to the Jacksonian period. It's worth noting, um, and this has been noted more in the humor publications, that the humor publications, the illustrated humor publications, and the pictorial press all it, their their home offices were all located in the theater district, and there's this intertwine. Not to mention, a lot of those artists became scenic designers, uh, scenic painters. I mean, there is a cross fertilization of theater and oh, throughout the whole history of the pictorial press. But um, and the, and then in many cases, what you would also often see, if I if I had not, yeah, I did mention it before, but I'll, I'll mention it again. Is, and you particularly see this after the war, where uh, when there are more resplendent engravings of theatrical productions, there's often a case where you have to say, okay, is this a theatrical production or is this a news item? I mean, you know, there'll, there'll be occasions like that. So in short, um, readers of Frank Leslie's Harper's Weekly and the Illustrated News viewed weekly visual performances, evident constructions of events whose claims to authenticity lay in their detail of circumstance place and dress while they also dramatically and diagrammatically portrayed a narrative of the news. So let me just close with a final observation about the change over time in the visual reporting of the, of the Civil War. As Alice and others have already noted, the most distinctive transformation in the news illustration during the war occurred in the depiction of African Americans. Leslie's and Harper's Weekly and the New York Illustrated News, uh, uh, New York Illustrated News perhaps being most interesting because it was Peace Democrat in its politics, uh, supported the Lincoln administration's decision in 1863 to finally recruit black troops. In the process of portraying their role in prosecuting the war, the familiar, distorting, invidious physiognomic signs of race evident in much of antebellum depictions of African Americans sometimes diminished. Engravings such as this one, of the assault of the 2nd Louisiana Colored Regiment on the Confederate works at Port Hudson, May 27, <coughs> excuse me, 1863, based on a sketch by Frank Shell, extolled the bravery of black troops as much as a year later. This Harper's Weekly illustration depicting Confederate troops slaughtering captured black soldiers at Fort Pillow, Tennessee, substantiated black soldiers' sacrifice to the Union cause. And this is, of course, this is uh, uh, an engraving in Harper's Weekly in November 65, so it's right after war, the true defenders of the Constitution. Um, so just in conclusion, uh, the reality of war clearly undermined the newspaper artists' early expectations and assumptions about the glory and spectacle of the battle 
and altered their ways of seeing the conflict that was occurring before their eyes, the very just nature, nature of warfare. And over four years, as the casualties mounted, but also as the Civil War transformed from a struggle to preserve the Union to a war to defend slavery, the ways of viewing and ways of seeing of the special artists of the pictorial papers and of their readers on the war front and on the home front changed as well. Uh, and I think the, the, uh, the thing that... Uh, I was discussing this with Susan last night, that we shouldn't lose track of, and hopefully we'll have some time to discuss, is it has a, it reverberates for at least a decade after the war. So for all intents and purposes, we're seeing a change that, perhaps to use the wrong term, embedded in American, at least in strong aspects in U.S. culture, and certainly in the practice of the pictorial press, with all the contradictions that are apparent. I mean, racist images counterposed against images of equality at that period of time, which is one of the issues about, well, what is the exact nature of the Illustrated Press and, and the distinction between these different publications. Uh, Harper's Weekly is not Frank Leslie's. Frank Leslie's, although the New York Illustrated News actually goes out of business in 1864, uh, those two publications have, in many ways, very, very distinct audiences. But I raise it because... As in many ways, when we discuss uh, uh, late next week about the memorialization of the war and sort of, <clears throat> one could argue, the moment of possibility in public sculpture of the, of the representation of quality as being one of the, one of the um, failures and losses after the end of Reconstruction or even before the end of Reconstruction, you see the same thing in popular illustration. So what we're seeing here is the beginning of a moment that reverberates further with hopefully we'll find time to talk about. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. So much, uh, uh, thank you.